Hey, welcome to Sounding Off with Kim Munson, our podcast. Be sure and check out our website. That is kimmunson.com, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter there as well. I am so thrilled to have on the line with me my friend Ben Martin. He is a patriotic historian, a former Army Ranger, uh, graduated from West Point, has a great love for America's founding. And uh, we've been doing uh, shows on this, on the Kim Munson Show. However, this particular subject, there's so much to talk about. We decided to also add in a podcast to this. So, Ben Martin, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you, Kim. So, you're, you're a great friend, too. And uh, we're going to talk today, I'm very proud to say, of black Americans in our American founding. And uh, it's, it's like you were talking about before. This is a pretty broad subject. We could go into a lot of different areas. But we're going to try to confine it uh, in the same time, keep it organized in everyone's mind about what the black Americans did in our Revolutionary War, in our Civil War, how they contributed to our country as well. And through that, we're going to talk about several of the different ordinances and actions, compromises that uh, kind of led us step by step into uh, our Civil War. And then we'll talk about the black Americans' participation in the Civil War and uh, talk a little bit about Massachusetts and why that was so important for the black Americans in the Civil War. And most of us have seen the movie or heard about the 54th Massachusetts. So we'll talk about that. Then from there, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what Lincoln did during the Civil War and the emancipation and after the Civil War and ensuring that the 13th Amendment was passed. And then we're going to jump all the way till the current times and talk about two Americans today, one black and one our president, President Trump, and the projects that they have started to emphasize and enforce the great principles of our founding and what that means to us today and especially reinforcing that in our American public education. Well, let's jump in here. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Black Americans in the Revolutionary War. Okay, so Black Americans in the Revolutionary War, there were thousands of Black Americans that entered the war. For the most part, we have to say that originally they were fighting for their own personal freedom from slavery. That was a promise made to them who would fight honorably in America's war for independence. By the way, the British were also offering the same deal to the black Americans, and some of them did fight with the British. It was, they were looking to, they were looking for their freedom. And in so doing, they they not only won their personal freedom, but distinguished themselves in, in our war effort. And here are a few examples. And we're going to talk about Crispus Attucks first, and Crispus Attucks has the distinction, if you want to call it that, of really being the first American martyr in the march toward independence. So in 5 March 1770, in something that we know was called the Boston Massacre, on the streets of Boston, he was one of the men who confronted a group of British soldiers called to quell the ruckus of the angry crowd of Americans protesters that were outside a British customs office. These men were fed up with the British taxes and the presence of occupying British troops in the city. Not only we know that the, about the British uh, troops in the city, but one of the things that I think most people don't know is that uh, they created quite a, a problem 
with getting uh, employment for the regular British citizens. I mean, well, they were British citizens, but they were Boston citizens, and and they were taking the jobs away from the the Boston citizens who would normally get these jobs. But the British were the British soldiers were pushing them out from there. So that's another reason why they were angry. <laughs> they were angry, and that's not talked about too much. So according to witnesses, Crispus was one of the five, the first five of the five to fall victim to the British guns. He received two shots in his chest. He was a very large man, middle-aged, multiracial, and he worked as a sailor, a rope maker, and a stevedore. His father was an African-American slave, and his mother was a Native American. Crispus had also been a slave, but in 1750, he had escaped from his owner and was never caught again. Uh, He was honored in death in a manner that no person of color, and especially, and I use that word because that's that's a phrase quote there, and especially one who had escaped slavery. Samuel Adams, and we've talked about him many times before, the founder of the American Revolution sometimes called, Samuel Adams organized a procession to carry the caskets of addicts and the other victims that fell to, to Faneuil Hall. According to historic accounts, the procession was estimated to number over 10,000 people, and that's approximately half of Boston's population wow. at that time. A pretty amazing mm-hmm. turnout. Crispus and the other victims laid in state in the hall, famous hall, for over for three days. And Martin Luther King Jr. said in 1964, he said, black school children know that the first American to shed blood in the revolution that freed his country from British oppression was a black seaman named Crispus Attucks. Today, schools and parks are named after him. So he became quite the the heroic figure. Who's our next, uh, next person? Okay, so our next person is Salem Poor. He was a patriotic soldier. And he began his life as a Massachusetts slave in the late 1740s. He purchased his own freedom 20 years later after his birth and ended it as an American hero. Soon after, he joined the Continental Army in the fight for independence. He enlisted multiple times and fought in the important battles of Saratoga and Monmouth. And he is most famous for his heroism at the Battle of Bunker Hill. There... His contributions impressed his fellow soldiers. After the war ended, 14 of them formally recognized his superb battle skills and sent a petition to the General Court of Massachusetts, calling him out as a brave and gallant soldier and saying that he conducted himself like an experienced officer. So that's quite a compliment to give to uh, a, a recruit, a person that's just come into the Army and not had the formal training that an officer would have. Wow. And at those times, that, that, that's, a, that's a pretty great compliment. So the, n- the next person we go to, and it, it's not a person, but it's a regiment, and it's the 1st Rhode Island Regiment Integrated Revolutionary Force. That's all part of the title. It was the first Continental Army unit mostly composed of New England black Americans. They, you know, and, and I have to say that during the Revolutionary War, it wasn't like in the Civil War. 
the soldiers, the different, uh, the black soldiers, the white soldiers, they weren't integrated into their own units, you know, separate but equal, but they fought together as an integrated unit. And so there were some white people in there, but this unit was mostly composed of New England black Americans. And they illustrated the black American skill as soldiers and their deep commitment to their fellow soldiers on the battlefield. And although General Washington had initially placed a ban on black soldiers in the Army, in the, in the Continental Army, he reconsidered it in late 1770s because of the dwindling manpower. And as a result, in 1778, the Rhode Island legislature declared that both black, free and black, uh, free and enslaved black Americans could serve. Patriots were also promised freedom at the end of their honorable service. And although that regiment, the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, was only about 130 soldiers, they fought like a much larger force. Their commanding general, famous General John Sullivan, praised the soldiers for their success against attacks at the Battle of Newport, saying they exhibited desperate valor in repelling three furious Hessian infantry attacks. That's all a quote. When the 1st Regiment were repositioned to Virginia amongst the several thousands of troops there late in the war, they stood out as, a, as professional soldiers, always neatly dressed and best under arms, as well as the most precise in their maneuvers. Again, another great compliment, especially with all the other, ones, all the other soldier units they were compared against. And then we go from a... From the soldiers we've been talking about, people that were actually in some form of, of physical contact, to Phyllis Wheatley, she was a patriotic poet, and she was a revolutionary intellect who waged a war for freedom, not with guns, but with her words. She was captured as a child in West Africa and taken to America. In her bondage, her owners did something that was actually illegal. They educated her and supported her literary pursuits. And in 1773, she was around 20 years old and became the first black American and only the third woman to publish a poetry book in America. Shortly after publishing her book, her owners gave her freedom. So... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. Ben Martin, uh, we did a show on this. I had never heard of Phyllis Wheatley. And I do oh, want to make a, a, a point here that that show is brought to you by the Harris family. Uh, they are underwriting that for the year, and we really appreciate them doing that. But I looked up Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, oh, I did a search for her, and what a remarkable story. No kidding, isn't it? Yes. I, I really think it is, and I, and I think that... Uh, you know her owners, and they don't really talk. You know, don't really talk about them here. Don't go into that part. But they were like so many people. It was against the law to educate slaves at the time, like slaves, and they, you know, violated that because they thought so much of her and supported her in her education and also in her literary pursuits. And, and I think I think that's just amazing. And uh, then after she published her book, they gave her freedom. An influential columnist, uh, colonist read Wheatley's poems and lauded her talents, her work, which reflected her close knowledge 
of the ancient classics as well as the biblical theology carried strong messages against slavery and became a rallying rallying cry for abolitionists. So, I mean, she not only helped the cause for American independence, but her works also helped in the independence of, uh, of her fellow black Americans. She also advocated for independence, artfully expressing support for General Washington's Revolutionary War, Revolutionary War in her poem to His Excellency George Washington. Washington, who himself had been forced to end his formal education early in life, appreciated Whitley's support and extolled her talents. The, the commander in chief even invited her to meet, explaining he would be happy to see a person so favored by the muses. So, really a remarkable uh, young lady. You know, I, I wish that these stories were being taught in school, Ben Martin. Well, you know, we're going to talk about that at the end, and, and there is great hope that they will start being done that. And I agree with you 100%, Kim. You're, you're absolutely right. That's what should be happening, and that would... Uh, it alleviate really a lot of stuff going on in our society oh, today. Yeah, and reinforce the virtues and the courage and the self-reliance that our, uh, our founding fathers had and that we don't seem to have so much today. <laughs> well, and, you know, I just want to make a point on that story is Phyllis Wheatley was uh, lived in West Africa. Typically, it, typically it was black chieftains that were uh, capturing other blacks and, and selling them to the British uh, that came across on, on slave ships to right. uh, America. So that's the first thing. But she gets here, and there are people that realize that there is a law that is unjust, and so they don't follow that law. And she is educated. So she, she goes from growing or being born in West Africa to she and the founder of or the father of America— George Washington having right. this mutual affection and respect for each other. It is a remarkable story. It certainly is. And it shows that, the, you know, that it was really a, a meritocracy and not an aristocracy over here. Yes. Okay. Who is our next personality? Okay. Now we go back again to soldiers, and this is Peter Salem. And uh, he, like Salem Poor, uh, fought in. The, uh, in, in the early part, and he was from Massachusetts. He fought in the Massachusetts uh, battles. And uh, he is best known for his crucial contributions at the, uh, at the outset of the Revolution. He was born into slavery also in Massachusetts in the mid-18th century, uh, not unlike any of the others. And Salem joined the Patriots in the earliest battles of the war, participating as a Minuteman at Lexington and Concord. And you know the difference between just a militiaman and a... And a a regular militiaman and a Minuteman. And, Explain and that to our listeners. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing, and thanks. I, I think, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. You know, we think most of the time when I talk to people, when I talk to uh, groups and when we talk about the Revolutionary War and stuff, most people think that the militiamen and the Minutemen are the same. But the Minutemen were actually a select group of the militia, and these people were were set to know that any time an alarm was called, they had to be on the village screen 
with their equipment, with their, with their arms, with their ammunition, with all of their military equipment in a minute. Now, I don't know if they ever made that, if they had those drills, but the, the point was they had to get there as quickly as possible because they were the first reactionary force. And so he, he served, and so that's the difference between a Minuteman and a, and a normal militia man. And so he served in Lexington and Concord. His owners supported this decision, and, and they freed him for doing that. And so Salem earned his place in history for his role in one, in, in one of the most important revolutionary war fights, the Battle of Bunker Hill. And although the British defeated the, Colon- the Continental Army in this encounter, it was not a total loss for the Patriots, as we all know. Their killing of many red cro- redcoats encouraged them to keep up the fight. And many historians credit Salem with killing a key officer of the Crown, and that was Major John Fitzcarran. And John Fitzcarran, as most folks know that have studied this, he was the Marine, the British Marine officer who actually led the force that left Boston in the middle of the night and, and attacked uh, the people first in, in uh, Lexington and then moved on to Concord and then had to fight his way back to Boston. Uh, he was a very good officer, and he was killed at, at the uh, Battle of Bunker Hill, and everybody credits Salem is, is the one who killed him. And uh, Salem's role is believed to have been memorialized in John Trumbull's painting, The Battle of Bunker Hill. And wow. so the, the last one we'll talk about today is called uh, James Ormstead Lafayette. And he actually, you know, he actually contributed to the war, but not as a soldier. He was a spy, and he was not only a spy, but he was a double agent. And he had his life changed drastically during the Revolutionary War, as, as this uh, alludes to. He went from a slave in Virginia to a double agent passing intel, intelligence, and misinformation between the two warring sides. When Armistead joined the Patriot efforts, they assigned him to infiltrate the enemy. So he pretended to be a runaway slave wanting to serve the crown. And he was welcomed by the British with open arms. And as he was serving in their camp, at first they just assigned him menial support tasks, but he soon became a more strategic resource due to his vast knowledge of the local terrain. He lived there. So Armstead's role got more interesting when the British directed him to spy on the Patriots. So, and this is, this is kind of ironic and, and humorous at the same time. And since his loyalty remained with the colonists, he claimed to be bringing the British intel about the Continental Army, but he was actually pushing incorrect information to foil their plans. In the meantime, he was learning details of the British battle plans, which he then brought back to his commander, who was the famous Frenchman, General Marquis de Lafayette. This served the Americans well. Because of Armistead's efforts, they got the insight they needed to successfully execute the decisive siege of Yorktown, which effectively ended the war. Years later, or at least all the fighting of the war at that time, years later, after a testimonial from the French general helped secure 
Ormistead's freedom, the former slave changed his last name, his surname, to Lafayette. And, and that's why we call him James Ormstead Lafayette today. Uh, it's, it's, just an, it's just an amazing thing uh, that he did that and, and he could pull that off. And you can't be a double agent without being pretty intelligent and uh, very <laughs> mentally agile. I was having trouble trying to figure out exactly what it, how that worked for a double agent. So to be one would really be interesting. <laughs> really, at that time, especially. You know, and at that time, there was no uh, mil- military court-martial or anything like that. You know, if you were caught as a, as a spy, you were, you were just hanged, I mean, summarily, out on the battlefield for the most part, probably in front of the other uh, of the troops that, uh, that captured you. So... It was, it was a dangerous it was work. A pretty dangerous work. Yes, exactly. So if we're going to go from those guys, but but we have to recognize, Paul. Just a minute to say there were some great contributions, and we only talked about seven of those people that that worked. You know, the black Americans, and in one unit, of course, six in one unit. But uh, very important to recognize their their valuable contributions in our in our fight for independence, and so. After that, we will go from talking about individuals and units to a very important uh, ordinance that was passed, and it's called the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And this ordinance was prepared by the Confederate Congress in New York City during the famous summer of 1787. At that same time, as the Continental, as a, as a Constitutional Convention was meeting in Philadelphia in preparing the Constitution. And this Confederation Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance on 13 July 1787. And ironically, a couple of years later, on 7 August 1787, then President Washington signed it into law. Now, backing up, what year did uh, President Washington sign that into law? 1789, the first year, you know, he, okay. had, he had just been, uh, in April, he had just been inaugurated as a president. You know, we had a, a little problem getting the, the new government off, uh, off on the right time. He was supposed to be inaugurated and, uh, in March, but because of getting, getting everybody together and getting this whole thing started, uh, we were a little bit late in getting started. So he, he wasn't inaugurated until the, uh, the end of April. Okay. And so, it was, so this is really early in his term as president. George Washington signed this into law. The primary effect of this ordinance, uh, Kim, was that the, the creation of the Northwest Territory as the first organized territory of the United States. And, and he organized this out of the region south of the Great Lakes, north and west of the Ohio River, and east of the Mississippi River. And so out of this came five states that we call, now today we call the American, you know, the the Midwest. And uh, of those five states, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan came out of that uh, territory, the Northwest Territory. But it did a couple of other things, and we'll talk about. Arguably the second, it was the second most important piece of legislation passed by the members of the earlier Continental Congress. In a second after, of course, the Declaration of Independence. It is the most important legislation that Congress has passed with regard to American public domain lands. 
we'll we'll talk about this, but it's it was a simple, it was a very short, very small, if you will, in terms of the number of words, but it was it had great impact. So it's it only had five articles in it. And I'm just going to say what the five articles were because we'll talk about them in just a second. Article one was, uh, was the, the whole article, and it was a very short article, but it it directed its it focused to the freedom of religion. And article two was the basic bill of rights uh, that that addressed all the other uh, all the other rights that were addressed in our in our norm, in our bill of rights today. And it kind of reflects upon, as we talked about before, about how almost all of the state constitutions had a Bill of Rights within them. So in the third uh, article, it's one of my favorite, and it's, uh, I guess, probably the second uh, most favorite, but it talks about religion, morality, and knowledge, and those all being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. And it says schools and the means of education shall shall forever be encouraged. And it also, the second part of that article, talked about Indian rights, the American Indian rights. The fourth article was, ter- was territories and states formed shall be, ever, shall be forever a part of the Confederation, or, you know, the nation at the time, and subject to the same laws and taxes. This is really important because this was not colonization. It was not, we're going to form these territories which will eventually become states, and they will be inferior to the original states. And that's what colonization basically is. But this wasn't colonization. It says once they pass all of the thing, same test, you know, in terms of size and the constitution and things, then they become equal to the other states that were here in the nation before them. And that's that's a pretty important that's a pretty important thing here in the way we formed our nation. Now, Article Five talks about the formation, and it kind of limits it sets the parameters of the formation. It says this territory can be divided in no less than three states and no more than five states. And it described the area again, as we talked about before, uh, south of the Great Lakes north and west of the Ohio River and east of the Mississippi River, in kind of general terms. And it also set the requirement that you had to have 60,000 free citizens there to, before it could be formed into a state. And then the sixth one is the one that we that's most applicable to, to our discussions today. And the sixth one is there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory. And uh, other other than for the punishment of crimes, wherefore the party shall have been duly convicted. And it provided always that any person escaped, that, and that was kind of the, the drawback here, that it provided always that any person escaping into the same from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed in any of the other states, or the, when in that case it's the original states, should uh, fugitive, should become such a fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming his or her labor or service as before mentioned. So that's a that's a drawback, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for the obviously, and it was a very disappointment for the uh, 
for the for black Americans at the time. So the language of the ordinance prohibited slavery, but it did not emancipate the slaves already held by settlers in this territory. Again, but it was it was an incremental move yes, uh, it was. towards freedom. It, as everything is, you know, but this was a big step because not only was it an incremental move there, but this was as what our founders believed it, it because it was as I said this was this was conceived at the same time as as our as our constitution was being written in Philadelphia. You know, they're two separate things. But this set the tone, at least this is what the founders thought was going to set the tone for how slavery would be stopped and how it would be handled in the other territories that would be created after this. So it established a precedent by, precedent by which the federal government would be sovereign and expand westward across North America with the admission of new slaves, with new states, with equal status, rather, than we talked about before, they, the expansion of the original 13 states. That was sort of the concept at the time of some of these states was that, well, we'll just keep expanding our western borders of our states across, and so we'll have these these huge states that are, that look horizontal, that are stratified almost. You know? Kind of like gerim- gerrymandering in, 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 Absolutely. in uh, <laughs> elections. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that's good. That's a good way to think of it too. And so, I mean, this was this was really an important uh, this important law, important ordinance about how we were going to form our nation and how they were going to be granted the the, the same things uh, that this, this would go and and they would have to take go through these steps. But once they went through these steps, and, and these aren't onerous steps. I mean, you have to have a certain number of people uh, before you can actually form a state and have a functioning government. So, and, and there were steps in there, you know, there were steps in there going uh, first to, to a territory, and then you built up before that you could apply for statehood. And, and I think that that's really important that they set all this stuff out. And the big thing was that slavery was not to be expanded into these states. So those, you know, the territories and then states. The prohibition of slavery in the territory had the practical effect of establishing the Ohio River as the boundary between free and slave states in the territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. And this division helped set the stage for national competition over admitting free and slave states, which we'll talk about in government as we talk about these compromises. The basis of a critical question in American politics in the 19th century until the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at this right now. I'm not sure that I've ever read the Northwest Ordinance. I'm going to do that. It's really not very long. No, it's not very long at all. And, and I think you will see that our, our founders were, they were thinking, they were forward thinking, they weren't, we're not going to just let this thing happen haphazardly. We're going to set a structure so that it can be done uh, very, very logically and uh, give the, the forming state, the forming territory and the state, the best chances of being successful. So it's pretty good. And they set responsibility, they give responsibility, they set responsibility to the people in the territories to become states. And so it's pretty good. So we're going to go now we're gonna we're gonna go to what 
the the Missouri Compromise of 1820, and really uh, we're going to we're going to highlight Jefferson's response to this. Now, Thomas Jefferson in, in 1820 was still alive. He was in terms of their life expectancy back then. He was a pretty old man, uh, and so. If this is 1820, so before we talk about that, I just want to give a short summary of the 1820 Missouri Compromise. And okay. these are the, the main features. that were, First of all, Maine entered the Union as a free state, while Missouri entered the Union as a slave state. Now, that was, it was so important to the people that were in our government back then, the founders that were in our government back then, that we kept a balance between free and slave states because, you know, they have equal representation in the Senate. And so they have equal, basically equal powers, the states, the slave states and the free states, and they wanted to keep that balance in place. So that those are the first two uh, points in the 1820 Missouri Compromise. The third one was that slavery excluded was excluded from the Northwest Territory north of the parallel 36 degrees and 30 minutes north. And that line, because nobody really knows what that is, but that was the southern boundary of the state of Missouri. So but they put this little clause in there. So you would think that Missouri, that would mean that Missouri would then be a free state because all the... Slavery was excluded north of that parallel line. That parallel line meaning it goes east-west. And so Missouri, that was the southern boundary of Missouri, but Missouri was accepted there, uh, accepted within the limits of the proposed state of Missouri. Those words are actually in there. So that's the third of the planks. And the fourth one was there, that went along with that was a stronger fugitive slave law which, again, was, was detestable by most of the founders then, except for the slave, the slave owners in the South. And uh, this, this was kind of, this hurt, this, this hurt. And a guy that was one of our original founders, like Thomas Jefferson, saw the danger in this, and he reacted to it. He, and uh, we have... A record of that reaction with his response in a letter that Thomas Jefferson sent to William Short on 13 April 1820. And I'm going to uh, read um, an excerpt from that. I'm going to give you an excerpt on that, from that. But I wanted to um, say before we started, when, who was this guy, William Short? Uh, William Short. And William Short was actually, uh, he had been a personal secretary to Jefferson when Jefferson went over to be, to follow Benjamin Franklin as our ambassador to France. He traveled with, with uh, Jefferson, and he was his secretary over there. And after Jefferson came back, he stayed over there, and he held other diplomatic positions for, for the American nation. And uh, so they were quite close. And actually, Jefferson, in a quote later on in life, called William Short an adopted son. 
So he said that's what he always thought of him as. So this isn't just some Yahoo that he's writing this letter to. This is somebody that uh, he shared his innermost thoughts with, especially about politics. And you can see from the start where in this the first introduction of this to Sharp, he says, although I had laid down as a law to myself never to write, talk, or even think of politics, to know nothing of public affairs, and therefore had ceased to read the newspapers. Yet this Missouri question aroused and filled me with alarm. He said, the old schism of federal and Republican threatened nothing more because it existed in every state and united them together by, and this is a word that he coined, fraternalism of the parties. And, and he didn't like that either. Although he was, he was one of the people, one of the founders that pushed for parties against George Washington, General Washington, and then President Washington's strong objection to that, as we, we talked about before when we talked about uh, Washington's farewell address. But the coincidence of a marked principle, moral and political, with a geographical line, once conceived, this is again Jefferson saying, I feared would never be obliterated from the mind, that it would be recurring on every occasion and renewing irritations until it would kindle such mutual and mortal hatred as to render separation preferable to eternal discord. You can see how prescient he is here. He says, I have been among the most sanguine in believing that our union would be of long duration. I now doubt it much. And see the event at no great distance. And when he's talking about that event at no great distance, he's talking about the splitting of our nation. And the direct consequence of this question, not by the time which has been so confidently counted on. Like he's saying there, we thought our, our nation would last a long time because of all of the principles we set forth in the Declaration and incorporated into the Constitution. But now I doubt that long duration, and I see it happening at, at, at very short time. And, and below uh, this next portion of that, of his letter, he's talking, when he's giving these names, he's talking about rivers as lines of demarcation of slavery. And he says, and this is a quote again, the law of nature, the laws of nature control this. And by the Potomac, the Ohio, and Missouri, or more probably the Mississippi, upwards to the northern boundary. My only comfort and confidence is that I shall not live to see this. And I envy not the present generation the glory of throwing away the fruits of their father's sacrifices of life and fortune and of rendering desperate the experiment which was to decide ultimately whether man is capable of self-government. This treason against human hope will signalize their epoch in future history as a counterpart 
of the metal of their predecessors, our founders. I mean, those are really strong words from Jefferson. Wow. So this is, uh, before we leave this subject, this is, this is uh, the tan- tangible uh, proof of Jefferson's prescience. No great distance. Remember, no great distance. Uh, what he said was, our, we have no great distance from now until the time when our nation splits apart. So these are the compromises and the, and the ordinances and the laws that were based upon, in my own words, faulty principles. We have the 1820 Missouri Compromise. It calmed and heated, it calmed the heated sentiment in the country for approximately 30 years. But in the meantime, in 1845, we had the annexation of Texas, and Texas claimed the territories of New Mexico and Utah as as, his, as their own, and he considered they would be areas where slaves would be able to to prosper. And then in 1846, right after 1845, 1846 to 1848, we had the Mexican-American War, and we had those new lands that we had gotten from Mexico in in this war. And then in 1846 to 1848, we had the Wilmot Proviso, which the Wilmot Proviso said that these territories, New Mexico and Utah, should be free states, and that created all kind of firestorm. And they tried three times to pass the Wilmot Proviso in our Congress, but each time it failed. So from 46 to 48, they kept trying over and over again to pass this Wilmot Proviso and make the big territories of New Mexico and Utah free states. In 1849, California came into the picture, and they petitioned Congress to enter the Union as a free state. And this upset the the balance (laughs) completely. (laughs) And so in 1850, we finally come up with all of this all of this turmoil, we come up with the 1850 Compromise. Again, another compromise based upon faulty principles. And, it's, and it was at California, Texas, New, it, this was the four states that it would affect directly. California, Texas, New Mexico, and Utah. And it said that California could come in as a free state, but that Texas, New Mexico, and Utah would all be the... the their status as slave versus free state would be determined by this phrase that uh, came about by by uh, Senator Douglas, popular sovereignty. And that meant that the territory could determine itself. The people in the territory would determine whether their state or their territory and eventually their state would be either slave or free. And so this compromise lasted for approximately 10 years. And it led to, and it, it created other controversy because it led to something that I know that's personally important to you. They led to the idea of that Kansas-Nebraska Act could also violate the, the line of demarcation set in the 1820 Missouri Compromise and that they could, they could determine their slave status by popular sovereignty too and that would that would throw out everything that had been 
settled in the 1820 Missouri Compromise that said nothing north of the southern boundary of Missouri in the Louisiana Territory could be a, a slave state. It would all have to be free. So this really threw everything in the next, and the thing that came from that, which is should be really close to your heart, is that uh, they came up with the Kansas-Nebraska Act for Populist Sovereignty. Uh, like I said, it undid the 1850 Compromise, and it brought Lincoln back into politics. And in October of that year, 1854, he gave his famous Peoria speech, the one we talked about before, uh, that was uh, three hours long, and he invited the people to come back after they ate that night, come back to the square, and he would talk to them for three hours. <laughs> wow. Know, who, who would do that? But that was important. That's how much politics, how, how much our, our general population was concerned about our, our politics. And it led to, uh, and this is the thing that goes back to you being a native of Kansas, it led to, from the 1854 to the start of the Civil War, this term, uh, the conflicts, they're called bleeding Kansas. Mm -hmm. So this compromises one on top of the other, on top of the other, all based upon faulty principles of of slavery, which went against the founding principles of our country. And it just created all kind of turmoil, not just in those local areas, but throughout the whole country, eventually leading to uh, our civil war. So that, that's just a kind of a step-by-step thing to get us to the next to the next part. And uh, so, what is our next part? And again, I want to acknowledge the Harris family. Uh, yeah. They are the sponsors of our show, the important speeches and documents of American founding. Uh, ben Martin is the voice that you hear there. He is a patriotic historian, a former Army Ranger, a graduate from West Point, has a deep understanding and love for our founding. So let's go to the next uh, next subject in uh, Black Americans and their contribution to the American founding. Okay, and and that's good. And I just wanted to add there. I thank uh, the Harris family so much. And and our main mission here with you, I think we both are of the same the same mind, is to get the real history out to American citizens, and and so they they can understand and do as uh, as we we famously talked a quote uh, from James Wilson over and over again that uh, before you can love something you must know it mm-hmm. and and that's what we're trying to do here because I think that anybody that knows our the true founding history can't help but love it after after they understand it so let's talk the next person we're going to talk about is Frederick Douglass and we could talk about him for a long time you know he was a great black champion of uh, Abolition, uh, but we're going to we're going to limit it to this his most famous speech, and that was on the fourth of July of 1852. So we step back uh, before that time a little bit, uh, about a, about a decade, and on 27 January 1843, in a resolution adopted by the American Anti-Slavery Society, the abolitionists. William Lloyd Garrison, famous, famously denounced the U.S. Constitution for sanctioning the cry of slavery. The compact 
which exists between the North and the South, Garrison wrote, is a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. <laughs> wow. So we, he condemned it with pretty strong language. You know, he was very famous back then, an editor and uh, an abolitionist. And the thing was that he had taken, he had heard Frederick Douglass speak and when he, you know, when Frederick Douglass didn't think he was, he, he didn't even know that he was going to be there. And he was so impressed that he took him under his arms, that he, he took Frederick Douglass, this black man that spoke so eloquently uh, and so forcibly, he took him under his arm and he became uh, his protege. And he, he gave him money, he supported him, and he wanted Douglas to go out and talk this against the uh, Constitution. He wanted him to follow in his footsteps and say the things that he wanted him to say. And Douglas did that for a while. You know, he just said, okay, guy, this guy's uh, he's supporting me, uh, he's encouraging me, and I'll go out there and preach his message. And he did. He, he spoke for quite some time in the early part of his this is Douglas in the early part of his career of speaking against the Constitution. But this all changed and changed in a dramatic way on 5 July 1852, like I said, almost a decade later. In this famous speech, Garrison's once protege and now self taught author, editor, and great abolitionist orator, in his own right, delivered a famous speech to the ladies of the Anti-Slavery Society in this classic hall, the, the Corinthian Hall of Rochester, New York. And his speech kind of floored the, the, the ladies there. They, they weren't all ladies there, but, you know, they were the, they were the ones that, that, that were the sponsors here. The speech has sometimes been called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Now, you know, this is on the Fifth of July, a day afterwards, but uh, he was... To, be, to come there and give a speech on the 4th of July. Today it's called uh, either What to the Slave is the 4th of July. That's either the title, or the more simple title is The Oration. Just The Oration. It's so famous. It's also known as one of the greatest abolition speeches of the 19th century. And let us review uh, some of the choice excerpts from this this is his most widely known of all of the Douglas speeches. It says, fellow citizens, pardon me. Now, you, you've got to imagine yourself one of the ladies that invited him there, you know. And, oh, boy. And they, you know, we, you know it's, an anti, it, it's an anti-slavery society, so they say, hey, this guy is going to be preaching the gospel as he wanted to. So he comes in and he says, fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask. Why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Now, you've got to stay with this because it, it makes some twists and turns here. Are there great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? Well, he, and am I... Therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar 
and to confess, confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? He says, do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct. So kind of shocked him right off the bat, you know, in doing that. And they're sitting there like, oh, Lord, what have we gotten ourselves into? I can just imagine everybody fidgeting in their seats, you know, especially the, the president of the club and, and all of our officers there. So fellow citizens... It would go back. This is Douglas again. Well, I just want to. I just want to interject. You yeah. and I met because we're both members of Liberty Toastmasters, yeah. and they always say to start your speech with a hook. I think yeah. he did. <laughs> he got their attention right away, didn't he? <laughs> and it created a lot of nervousness in the crowd. <laughs> and he goes on to say, "Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions." whose chains, heavy and grievous, yesterday are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with this popular theme would be treason, most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject then, fellow citizens... He hadn't even gotten to that yet. My subject in fellow citizens is American slavery. I shall see this day in its popular characterization from the slave's point of view. Now, now if they weren't nervous before, they really are now. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> so he says, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than this 4th of July. But the church, and, and I'm just giving some points to the excerpts, I'm not, you know, going, but so some things may look a little bit disjointed, but I've tried to put them in and capture these uh, so that I capture the essence of what he's trying to say. So he goes and he says, but this church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slaves, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. It has made itself the bulwark of American slavery and the shield of the American slave hunters. One is struck with the difference between the attitude of the American church towards the anti-slavery movement and that occupied by the churches in England towards a similar movement in that country. There, the church, true to its mission of ameliorating elevating and improving the condition of mankind, came forward promptly, bound up the wounds of the West Indian slave, and restored him to his liberty. There, the question of emancipation was a highly religious question. It was demanded in the name of humanity and according to the laws of the living God. And instead of being the honest men, I have before declared them to be, they were the veriest impostors of ever that were ever practiced on mankind. This is the inevitable conclusion, and from there, there is no escape. But I differ from those who charge this baseness on the framers of the Constitution of the United States. 
So that's kind of a, a little difficult because I didn't kind of mention that at the first part. When he says instead of being honest men, he's talking about the American founders there. I have before declared them to be. They were the various imposters that ever practiced on mankind. And then he goes on to say, that he's talking about that they're there. He says, I differ with those that charge. While he's saying that, he, uh, he's saying that uh, these bad things about the American founders, uh, and that, that he had once declared them, uh, he had declared them honest men, while he's saying that, he is saying this is an uh, inevitable conclusion, but, but he says, I differ from those, these other people who charge their ba- the, this baseness of, the, of what's happening to the slaves in America on the framers of the Constitution of the United States. Now take the Constitution. So now this is, there's a big change here. And he says, now take the Constitution according to its plan reading. And I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery cause in it, clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain certain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. So now he's, he's extolling the virtues of the Constitution. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of this nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope, while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of the American institutions. My spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. So, you know, this is over a 10,000-word speech that I've condensed into about uh, 300 words here to to give you the essence of it. And and (laughs) and, and just the the nervousness, uh, you know, the anxiety of the people that were there listening to the speech and, and the ones that had called him forward to to give the quote-unquote oration. Well, I'm so, I'm going to read that as well. I mean, it, because I was a little bit confused on where he was going with that. I want to make a note here. I was trying to yeah. find the text of it. You said it's over 10,000 words. Yeah, but it's about 10,400. Okay. Yeah. In doing so, I just found a, a headline. This is from The Guardian. It says, the Frederick Douglass statue was torn down on the anniversary of his great speech. That happened this year, if you right. can believe it. Unbelievable. Oh, oh, I've got another one to tell you, but I'm saving that to the end. It's going to be a special surprise for you. Ken. Okay. But, uh, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. So, but, but it is, it's a great speech, and it, it's like I said, it's his most famous speech. And I didn't want to go through the 10,000 words, but I wanted to give you the essence of it. And uh there, there are some twists and turns in there, but I, I just, you know, I just keep imagining these, uh, these wonderful ladies that, you know, have this anti-slavery thing, and they think, oh, this is our hero, this is the great speaker, this is one of the greatest abolition speakers of the whole century. He's coming here, and he's going to speak to the crowd that we've invited to come. And, uh, you know, he starts off, and they, they, they just go, whoa. 
So it, I'm sure there's a lot of twists and there are twists and turns in there, but I think there are a lot of twists and turns in their anxiety through this. Whole <laughs> I'm sure, but ultimately, ultimately, he appreciates the Constitution, the founders, and the Declaration. Is that the yeah, takeaway? And that's exactly the takeaway. But he is condemning the the people that are that that follow on from the founders, you know, because now we're. We're in the 19th century, we're in the middle of the 19th century, and he's saying, you haven't lived up to your responsibility. Uh-huh. You know, okay. he says, our founders, our framers have given you this. And he says, you're not, you're not following their lead. <laughs> you're not doing what they told you you were supposed to do, you know, is to uh-huh. ensure that this goes on. And so, yeah, it, it's, but you have to kind of follow him there. It's, uh, you know, I think it's a, gr- it's a great speech because... Uh, like I said, it, it keeps the audience's attention, I think, through the whole 10,000 words. I've got homework so, to do now, Ben Martin. <laughs> well, but, but you'll love it. I promise you will. It'll be something. And, and I encourage all of, your, all of the, your listeners, too, all the people out there, to, to read it because it's, it's very good. He, he is condemning them, you know, and he has his perspective for not doing. And, and we, we are guilty of that too in our generation right now that we're not following our founders you know we've we've turned our whole education system over to where we're not even learning the accurate history the glorious accurate history upon which we are founded today you know with with some of these crazy things that are being taught in our public schools today mm-hmm. and we have a solution for that so we're going to go now to our our sixth point and that's black americans in the civil war if if you're ready, okay, to, ready to go there. Okay, so the emancipation also allowed black men to serve in the Union Army. The emancipation, as you know, uh, was uh, in January of night of 1863, and it says this had been illegal under a federal law with service in the in the uh, army, the Union Army that. The blacks to serve there. This had been illegal under a federal law enacted in 1792, although African Americans have served in the army in the War of 1812, and the law had never applied in the Navy. That's that's kind of that's kind of funny. So mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to talk to us. Well, I have before talked to some of my buddies in the Navy. <laughs> we always get on each other's nerves. Anyway, just for the heck of it. Okay, with their stake in the Civil War now patently obvious, African Americans joined the service in significant numbers. And by the end of the war, about 180,000 African Americans were in the Army, which amounted to about 10% of the troops in that branch, and another 20,000 were serving in the Navy. So uh, we're talking about a substantial part of of the force here. So initially, black troops were paid significantly less in their service in the Army and the, and the uh, Navy. They were paid significantly less than their white counterparts. White privates made $13 a month and had their uniforms paid for without cost and it's, or provided. You know, and the blacks earned $10 a month, which was $3, and then they had three more dollars deducted each month for their uniform cost. By June of 1864, this had become enough of an embarrassment that Congress deemed that white and black troops should be paid equally and made the action retroactive. So I'm sure that made uh, that, that encouraged uh, the 
the black Americans to uh, to serve, and uh, and gave gave them a pretty big lump sum for the the retroactive pay uh, for all those the months that they'd been serving without that. And African American soldiers were routinely issued uh, equipment that was much older or or more poorly made in comparison with the equipment of their white comrades. So they they righted all of these laws, you know, in real time rather than waiting for a time, but that they had existed for months uh, was still not, not, not a really good sign. But they were corrected. The black soldiers also faced a threat that no white troops faced. Uh, when they were captured by the rebels, black troops could be put into slavery, uh, you know, whether they had been free or slaves Ooh. before the proclamation. So, you know, that, that was something that they really had to consider. And they also suffered more harsh treatment if they were held as prisoners of war, you know, by the, by the rebels mm-hmm. from, from whom they had, had escaped. And, and you know, th- despite the many advantages under which they labored, black, black American troops who saw battle performed admirably. African Americans participated directly in fights at Millican's Bend in Louisiana, Port Hudson, Louisiana, Fort Wagner in South Carolina, and that's where the famed 54th Massachusetts Regiment lost two-thirds of its officers and nearly half of its enlisted men. So, and, and that, that was made into a famous movie. Uh, they're very popular that I think many people have seen. Did you ever seen that one, Kim? No, I haven't. I need to do that as well. I have lots to do after <laughs> we get done with this podcast. <laughs> but I, I do want to say, I mean, it's a really good movie, and uh, Morgan Freeman is in it, and he, he's the starring role in that thing. He's, he's the first sergeant of the of the unit, uh, or the senior sergeant of the unit. And, and I also want to add that in their service in the Civil War, black Americans were awarded 25 medals of honor for their bravery during the war. That's That's pretty substantial. So we go from there, talking about their their great service in their Civil War, and and I I just want to reflect back. We talked about all those steps that went from the 1820 Missouri Compromise to the Civil War, and we see all of those false steps that were taken taken based upon faulty principles. And so it led to, eventually, just as Jefferson had, had forecast, you know, that, that, that this would lead to a, a dissolution, a dissolving of our nation, a splitting of our nation into a slave. When he was talking about those demarcations of the rivers, he was talking about the demarcation for slavery and how that couldn't stand. Uh, it was sort of like a shortage of uh, Lincoln's famous speech of a house divided, you know, but they're very short. But it does portend the, the same outcome. So we're now taught we're in the Civil War. We just talked about their contributions there, something that never would have happened, should have happened if it had been done right to start with. But we paid a dear price for that as a, as a nation. Uh, and so we go to... Our seventh uh, point that we're going to talk about is Lincoln and the Emancipation and the, and the 13th Amendment. Now, emancipation was a military policy. We remember Lincoln's first inaugural address when he talks about, you know, he is, 
he supports the Constitution, that's what he has sworn his oath to in the inaugural ceremony. And he says, you know, under that Constitution, I have no right to effect slavery where it all, in the states where it already exists. Uh, and so he's talking about that. And, and so, you know, during the conduct of the war, he comes up with this idea of the Emancipation Proclamation, not as, you know, something against, uh, an action against the laws of the Constitution, but as a War Powers Act, you know, and so that's what it is fundamentally a military policy. So the Civil War was fundamentally a conflict over slavery. And however, the way Lincoln saw it, emancipation, when it came, would have to be gradual, as the most important thing was to prevent the Southern Rebellion from severing the Union permanently in two. And he talks about that in his first inauguration, you know, that we have to, we, there's no need, we don't, you will not have a conflict unless you initiate it. And he's talking to the southern states. But as the war entered into its second summer in 1862, it, things weren't looking really good for the Union Army. And that's when he started thinking, well, you know, I can do something to affect slavery and at the same time affect the make of a positive effect upon the Union Army and our chances of winning this war and keeping the Union together. And so he said there were, there were thousands of, of black Americans in the South that were working the plantations and making the food and making the, the war materials so that the white rebel soldiers could fight. And Lincoln thought, he said, you know, if I can take those men, those black Americans, off of the southern plantations, then in order to, to, for the Confederate Army to sustain itself during this war, I'm going, they're going to have to send some of those white soldiers back to work the farms to produce this. So he said, this is a military operation, and he says, I can free the slaves that are in the states that are fighting against us, and that will decrease their strength. And so that's why he was, he thought, in his mind, under the war powers, he was able to enact this emancipation. And so Lincoln saw the emancipation would further undermine the Confederacy while providing the Union with a new source of manpower to crush the rebels. So not only would they lose these men on the front line, lose them on the plantation and then lose them on the front line. But a lot of those people would make their way north, and then we could use them in our army. So it was kind of a double, of, a double positive effect. So in July of 1862, the president presented the draft of his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and his thoughts to his cabinet. And the Secretary of State, William Seward, who was one of his great advisors, urged him to wait until things were going better for the Union on the field of battle, or the emancipation might look like a last gasp of a nation on the brink of defeat. And so Lincoln agreed and returned to do more editing to the draft over the summer. And in 17 September of 1862, the bloody Battle of Antietam 
gave Lincoln the opportunity he needed. Even though it wasn't a clear victory, uh, it was almost a stalemate, of, but, it, but it, you know, it could be described as a battle of, of victory. And so then Lincoln issued the preliminary proclamation to his cabinet on 22 September, and he published it to the nation the following day. And as a cheering crowd gathered at the White House, Lincoln addressed them from a balcony. He said, I can only trust in God. I have made no mistake. It is now for the country and the world to pass judgment on it. And he's talking about this. And in this Emancipation Proclamation that he issues in September, he says, you have a, you have a hundred days to change your mind, or this will go into effect on the 1st of January of 1863. So he said, you either stop fighting and come back into the Union, or on that day, I am going to free your slaves. And, and so, he said, you know, it's sort of like he didn't really have power to do that, but, but he was basically sending that message out, like, hey, all of, you, all of the black slaves out there, if, you know, I'm freeing you. So if you come into the Union, you will be a free man. And, you know, that's a great incentive to run away, or, you know, go, mm-hmm. you know, like they had been doing. And, and so it, it really worked. And Link, so it worked in, uh, in that they, by the end of the war, they had 200, almost 200,000 serving, black Americans serving in the Union forces. And Lincoln also exempted selected areas of the Confederacy that had already come under Union control in hopes of gaining the loyalty of the white people in those states. And practice then, the Emancipation Proclamation, did not immediately free a single enslaved person, as the only places it applied were places where the federal government had no control, the southern states currently fighting against the Union. But in effect, it really did have great, it, it, it did have great impact, positive impact upon, upon the Union forces. Wow. And negative effect on the Confederate forces. Wow. And despite its limitations, Lincoln's proclamation marked a crucial turning point in the evolution of Lincoln's views of slavery, as well as a turning point in the Civil War itself. And I said by the end of the, the end of the war, again, there was over two thousand black Americans. Two hundred thousand, yeah. Two hundred thousand. Did mm-hmm. I did I miss yeah. that? Did I say yep. wrong? Yep. Thank you. Two hundred thousand. <laughs> okay, let's let's move on to the thirteenth amendment, uh, Ben. Sure. And that's, what we're, that's exactly where we're going, so thank you, Kim. The amendment was passed by Congress on the 31st of January, 1865. And I say that with, with, with some halting, because as we know, uh, you know, Lincoln won't see the end and its ratification. And it says, so it's ratified by the required 27 of the 36 states in existence at that time on 6 December 1865 and proclaimed on 18 December. It was the first of the three Reconstruction Amendments, or what we find, what some of us call the Civil War Amendments to our Constitution. And on that day, 31 January 1865, the House of Representatives passed the proposed amendment with a vote of 119 to 56, just over the required two-thirds majority. And Lincoln had worked really hard through his representatives in, in there to make sure that this passed. And if you ever see the movie Lincoln, 
And, and have you seen that one yet, Kim? No, I haven't. <laughs> that you really see how personally involved he becomes in making sure that that resolution is passed by the House of Representatives, and it's just barely passed. So all of his efforts were necessary in order to get that passed. Okay. And the following day, Lincoln approved a joint resolution of Congress submitting it to the state legislatures for ratification. So he wasted no time. You know, he said, okay, this has been passed. Now we're sending it out to the states the very next day. But he would not see the final ratification, as, as I alluded to earlier, because of Lincoln's assassination on 14 April of 1865. And the necessary state number of states did not ratify the amendment until, as we talked about, that 6 December. And section, what, are the three, what are the three Civil War amendments? Well, you have the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments. And, you know, the 13th Amendment basically, uh, you know, set free slaves and ended slavery there. And then you had the 14th Amendment, which established equal powers in all of the, in all of the states for all of the citizens. And then the 15th Amendment uh, was, was the vote was for the, for the black males. You know, again, uh, you know, we wouldn't do that until the 19th Amendment, where we would have uh, we would have we would have voting for both genders, you know, male and female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so that was you know that was kind of a we're kind of slow on the uptake there. That's that's for sure to to create this equality. But we're walking but in the right direction. We're walking in the right direction. And it's steps. Mm-hmm. And it's gradual mm-hmm. steps, but it's all. Positive. It just took a long time because half of the nation didn't want these steps, you know, didn't want us taking these steps. And so it was a battle all the way to include, of course, the greatest battle of our nation being the, the, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And while Section 1 of the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery and involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, Section 2 gave the U.S. Congress the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And it's a very short one, and so just uh, for, for purposes here today, uh, let's read the, the, actual, the actual text. And in Section 1, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And so the second part of that, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by the appropriate measures. So that is, that is the 13th Amendment that started the, the three amendments that we call either the Reconstruction Amendments or I like to call them the Civil War Amendments. Okay. So, Ben, we, we have probably about eight minutes left on this podcast which uh, it may not do total justice to the last subject, but that is now. Let's talk well, a little bit true. about that. Okay, and I think we can cover all that today. Okay. So we'll talk about the A subject, and that's the current, coming to the current day, and Bob Woodson and President Trump in their 1776 projects and commissions. And I'll start with Bob Woodson, and most people have probably seen Bob Woodson by now. Uh, and we've had him on the show. He He's been a you, guest you on the show. You have really? Yes. Oh, congratulations! I, I missed that one. I wish I would have. I wish I would have caught it. I'm sorry, Kim. That's a great. That was a great bit. Uh, and so you know what a 
what a thoughtful, considerate man he is, and, and what great intellect and, and great experience he has. And he has brought people like himself together. And, and uh, his project, uh, Campaign 1776, which, which he calls an assembly of independent voices who uphold our country's authentic founding virtues and values and challenge those who assert America is forever defined by its past failures, such as slavery. We seek, he says, to offer alternative perspectives that celebrate the progress America has made on delivering its promise of equality and opportunity and highlight the resilience of its people. Our focus is on solving problems. We do this in the spirit of 1776, America's true founding. And, and it's amazing. It says the 1776 Unites represents a nonpartisan and intellectually diverse alliance of writers, thinkers, and activists focused on solutions to our Congress, to our country's greatest challenges in education, culture, and upward mobility. So he is looking at the future. He's looking at what we can do. He's looking at the past, too, when he talks about the history after the Civil War, about the great strides that the black communities in America had made in these specific things, in their education, in their culture, in their upward mobility, uh, in then how it was all kind of torn asunder when we got back to these civil rights laws that put them uh, in independence of the government again. He said, we, we didn't need those things. We were doing well. We were making great strides. And he says, since we've had those laws, he said, we've gone backwards in, in not having two-parent families and not having the same independence we had, uh, the, the same wealth that we had created by the by the businesses that we had created, by the schools that we had created, and the educational standards that we had raised. And it's just amazing to, to listen to him talk about that and to look forward and not backwards and claim himself as a victim. It is and so great for him to do this, to push back on that New York Times 1619 project, right. which is trying to tear down America's founding. What about President Trump? Well, President Trump, then he has he started this and he did it on 24 September, very recently. President Trump's again calls it the 1776 Commission, and this is a commission to promote patriotic education. And he in that he also accused the New York Times of warping history in the same thing, the 1619 Project. So they're they're aimed against <laughs> this this the same enemy here. The New York Times and that 1619 project. And he says, too, it promotes an inaccurate version of U.S. history by overemphasizing race and the legacy of slavery. As we know, you know, we talk about 1619, but if you go back and you look at history, real history, you find that 1619 was when slavery came to America, but it had existed in the continents of North America and South America way back when in the 15th century. And, well, and in Europe and in Africa, I mean, well, across yeah. the world. Before that, but yeah, but then bringing this over, you know, the 1619 Project says, you know, basically creates the illusion that, that 
that this slavery came over to this to the new world because of America. And when you look at the real results, there were over 10 or approximately 10 million slaves brought over in that period of time to to the, the new world. And of that time, America's the portion that came to America was small in comparison. So I mean, there's, there's a lot of things there. And Trump said in his 17-minute speech at, in, on 24 September that the national, when he was at the National Archives, he was marking the anniversary of the Constitution signing. Uh, so it was just a few days after our, after the 17th of September, which was the you know which was mm-hmm. the day we marked as the Constitution Day. He says this commission will encourage our educators to teach your children. He's talking to us as citizens about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding in 2026. And so he goes through all this, and then he makes this thing, and you'll appreciate this, Kim, he makes this direct allusion to announce that he would erect a new monument in Del- to two Delaware's founding father, Caesar Rodney. I love that. Fourth- I saw that. You did? I did. Uh-huh. And when you were talking about the statue being torn down uh, for Douglas, a statue to Rodney was also removed in June of 2020, as you know, from this thing, from a square in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, I'm not going to talk about who else lives in Wilmington, Delaware, but just to let, let you know, it was in Wilmington, Delaware. And it... And it uh, this was amid all that national anti-police brutality and anti-racism protest, uh, which are still going on today, as we know. And uh, just for everybody that doesn't know as much as you do about this, that we'll say really quickly, Rodney was a Delaware delegate suffering from cancer who rode 70 miles on horseback in one night through storms and rising rivers to, create, to cast a tie-breaking vote for independence before the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And I have his quote here that when he signed that and broke the tie so that Delaware could sign in, uh, in approval of the Declaration of Independence. Caesar Rodney said this, in voting for independence as the lead representative of Delaware, Caesar Rodney said, as I believe the voice of my constituents and all sensible and honest men are in favor of independence, my own judgment concurs with them. I vote for independence. And that's the end of the presentation, Kim. Oh, Ben Martin, thank you so much. This is an amazing podcast. I'm so glad that we have it. Uh, and uh, people can get that at my website at kimmunson.com. Ben Martin, this has been so informative, so enjoyable. Thank you so much. God bless my you. Pleasure. God bless you, my listeners, and God bless America.